I learned Bronx Councilman Oliver Coppell was the brainchild behind the Let's Go Travel Guidebooks, I said, who knew? It turns out Let's Go is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Councilman Coppell will be joining us in just a moment to talk about how it all got started. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Also today, a travel guidebook that's not for tourists. It even says so right on the cover. The managing editor of the Not for Tourists Guides joins us. And later, a tour guide of the Living Breathing Variety. A woman who leads walking tours here in New York City takes us a few steps down her route. That's all coming up this morning on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. Sometimes it's, it's funny because uh, every people travel, travel with the same travel guide and you find all the same people in the same place with the same guide. My name is Mathieu and I am from France. I live in the suburb of Paris. I used to, to have a lonely planet with me because I used to, to use this one and it's very easily and uh, you can find easily the information that you need. I have some habits and I prefer to use a lonely planet. For my part, when I travel, I prefer to uh, to find some specific spot with no, nobody and to, to meet some real people from the town, not tourists. For my part, I prefer to do the New York uh, New Yorker stuff instead of a tourist uh, attraction. Fifty years ago, an 18-year-old Harvard University undergrad by the name of Oliver Coppell founded a scrappy travel guide for budget-conscious student travelers. The Let's Go guides quickly took off, and today the series covers dozens of places, from Australia to Turkey. The man who started it all is all grown up now and representing parts of the Bronx as a New York City councilman. Oliver Coppell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The uh, operation of Let's Go is is run through something called Harvard Student Agencies, which is the Student Business Corporation up in Cambridge. And the leadership there uh, is student-run, it, so it changes every year. So there's not a lot of continuity. And my name for decades, I must say, uh, there was not a lot of recognition. And in fact, it was, I don't know, maybe maybe seven or eight years ago when someone wrote a history and didn't mention my role, and I got in touch with them up in Cambridge. I said, hey, if you're going to write a history of this thing, at least recognize who started it. Since then, I've gotten more, uh, a little bit more recognition. I mentioned in sometimes in some of the forewords to the guides and the people who work at Let's Go, the kids now know that I started this 50 years ago. But as I say, for decades, I was really (laughs) not recognized at all. You were a sophomore at Harvard when you started Let's Go. How did the idea come about? The idea came because my father was in the travel business. And when I was a freshman, he suggested that I, with with his support, uh, organize some charter flights for students and staff to go to Europe. This was the beginning uh, of, you know, the Americans going to Europe, so the charter flights were very successful, but I wasn't the only one uh, doing charter flights, and Harvard University decided that they wanted to put a little order to this, and so they said all the charter flights had to go through the Harvard student agencies, and they asked me to run the charter flights because I had successfully run charter flights my freshman year um, on my own, actually out of my dorm room. So we then centralized the charter flight operation at Harvard student agencies, and we ran quite a few flights 
you know, 10 or 11, 12 flights uh, a summer. And since I was running those flights, again, to give my father credit, uh, he had been in the publishing business uh, in Europe before he emigrated to the United States. He said, why don't you do a guidebook for the students and, and not only do it for your students, but do it more generally. So we started in 1960, which is 50 years ago, with a very uh, abbreviated guide, which gave people tips, uh, how to travel, what to look for. And then uh, for 1961, we did a much more serious guidebook. We had a student, John Marlin, who still lives here in New York. John Marlin was our first, if you will, writer, or uh, because he actually went over to Europe, went to the major cities, uh, looked for hotels and restaurants and clubs, and wrote a real guidebook. The 60 guidebook was more of a sort of a handbook, but the 61 guidebook was a real guidebook with uh, hints and suggestions as to where to stay, what to see, where to eat, and so on. It went on from there. Each year it got better. But by the uh, time that I left, and I continued to work on it as I uh, went to law school, also in Cambridge, but during my law school time, I really turned over the management to successor students. And by the time uh, I left Cambridge, which was 1965, the guidebook was well-established, was being distributed across the country, but it was still only a relatively uh, small guidebook. And since then, it's been evolving and growing. Now, I gather from uh, what I've been told that they're doing 27 guides for this year, including places all around the world, different countries all around the world. Some cities have their own guides now, and it's quite an enterprise. Hundreds of students are involved in both gathering the information and in putting the book together. Looking back now, are you surprised by that success? I always thought that this was a successful or would be a successful venture. In fact, I toyed with the idea of doing guides as a professional career because I thought this was a good idea. In fact, a colleague of mine, Jim Posner, who he and I put together some prototypes for a guide to the USA. But, uh, well, I was then in law school and kind of my path diverted. And so uh, I didn't continue with it. But I did think that this was a good idea and that it would it would succeed and could be expanded. Do you regret now not doing that? Not really. I'm very satisfied with what I've done with my life. But everybody says to me, well, why? you started this and now it's such a big, successful enterprise. Aren't you sorry you gave it up? No, listen, it, I'm very proud of it. I'm, and I'm delighted that students run it and hundreds and hundreds of students get both money and an income out of it and an experience that for many of them is a real experience of a lifetime. We we had a a reunion. We're going to have another reunion, the 50th reunion in a few weeks. But we had a reunion of Harvard student agencies itself because student agencies were only started a few years before Let's Go started. And at that reunion, a number of people came back who had worked with Let's Go because Let's Go has become perhaps the most important agency of the Harvard Student Agencies. The Let's Go Agency is a major uh, major undertaking. And people who came back from 30, 40 years ago who had worked on Let's Go talked about how important Let's Go had been in their lives, the careers that they chose, the places that they were going to see, the way in which they functioned were all molded by their work for Let's Go. And I'm, I'm really very proud of that. You mentioned that the students get paid for this work. Absolutely. The income that you made from Let's Go, was that limited to your time at Harvard? Yes. So no residuals? No residuals, no, no. 
Did you have office space during those early years, or were you largely operating out of your dorm room? No, no more. We, Harvard Student Agencies had a basement office. We ran a whole bunch of businesses. We, you know, the, all the traditional businesses that you have uh, in the college. We ran a bartender agency. We ran, uh, sold uh, rings, uh, student uh, rings to the students. In those days, we had uh, we ran the student laundry service. We did the concession at the football stadium. I think there were as many as 30 different businesses. Let's Go was one of those businesses, all run out of the basement office uh, on Mount Auburn Street. What an entrepreneurial spirit going on there at Harvard, huh? Yeah. I was also, in addition to being the founder of Let's Go, I was each year you, there was a president of Harvard Student Agencies, and I was the president in 1962. A bit of an overachiever, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and, and uh, I learned a lot. I understand that the first edition of Let's Go included tips on how to travel from Europe to Asia on just four cents. Well, that was the ferry the ferry ride across the Bosphorus, you know. So we did have we did point that out uh, as kind of a you know an odd fact or not not a joke, but but you know just an odd fact that you can go from one continent to another for four cents. What are among the most adventurous entries you remember putting into Let's Go? I guess the most adventurous ent- uh, entries were about clubs, different, you know, places that the kids could go. Uh, we we focused, Let's Go was focused, and to some extent still is focused, on students. And, you you know, students want to go to the more adventurous places. They want to go to the far-out places. They want to go to places where you hear music and uh, can dance. And we also had, you know, entries about uh, uh, very inexpensive places to stay, hostels and dormitories and things like that. Are people surprised, constituents even, that Councilman Oliver Coppell is the founder of the Let's Go Travel Guidebook? People are very surprised. Everybody says to me, you know, I didn't know you did this. I didn't know you did this. It's a pretty cool thing. Yes, it is. I'm very proud of it. Let's talk about how the guides are written. They're witty, at times sarcastic. Did they start off that way? Yes, yes, there was an attempt to do that. We we again, we were writing for students and there was an attempt to to do that and uh they became very successful. At one time I was told that Let's Go was the most widely circulated uh, guidebook uh, in the world. How frequently did you travel as a Harvard student? I went to Europe a number of times as a student and I've always traveled quite a lot and I I do want to say that even in recent years, whenever I travel to a country where there's a Let's Go guide, I take it with me. I buy it for that particular year. A few years ago, we used it when we went, my wife and I and my daughter went to Ireland. I'm far from being a student. Let's Go was a very useful guide. First of all, what we didn't have then was were extensive notes on the history and culture of the countries. Now you have extensive writings of that nature uh, in all of the guides. Secondly, the guides now are quite fat, have quite a lot of entries, and the entries vary. So there are dorms, as I mentioned before, hostels, but there also are bed and breakfasts, relatively inexpensive hotels that middle-class people, anybody can stay in. And when I was in Ireland, I used the guide to pick out bed and breakfasts, which was extremely uh, uh, satisfactory. We got very nice places, well-described, easy uh, to find through the guide. And I would recommend to anyone from, uh, you know, from age uh, 15 to age uh, 90 to take Let's Go when they go anywhere. 
The guides today also offer people ways to get involved in the places that they visit, to volunteer, to do other things, to give back to those areas. How do you feel about that addition? The guides are wonderful just to, to learn about the countries and the culture. And the uh, the as you mentioned, the, the offerings are, are wide. I haven't read all the guides, I must admit. I can't say that I'm a great expert, but every time I've looked at them and I don't think that I ever go into a bookstore without looking to see if Let's Go is on the shelf. Uh, I've been impressed. Councilman Oliver Coppell, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Bronx Councilman Oliver Coppell founded the Let's Go Budget-Friendly Travel Guides 50 years ago as a student at Harvard University. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My name is Vivian. I'm from Brazil. I travel once a year. I try to save money on some stuff, but then other stuff I spend a lot of money. Um, I always buy travel guides. Every time I travel, I buy at least one. I don't have a specific one. Just if the book looks fine, I buy it, you know. Because I'm afraid of getting lost and I like to search before I go to the place. Usually the ones who have good maps and good chips, you know, like that place, cheaper places, but it's still nice places. A travel guide is generally designed with tourists in mind. But the Not for Tourists Guide, or NFT, is a series of guides designed for people who don't necessarily want to be a tourist. Craig Nelson is a managing editor for the NFT Guides. Craig, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. What's the philosophy behind the Not for Tourists Guides? The key to Not for Tourists is that there's a lot of guidebooks out there that can tell you about the history and where to stay if you're visiting, the best hotels. Our guide is really for locals. It's where's the best supermarket, where's the library, where's the post office, and where's the best place to get a drink after work, of course, too. You were just very nice, and you gave me the Not for Tourists guide to New York City. How many cities do you actually cover now? We actually cover 10 cities in the printed guides, and we actually have seven more on our website. So we're starting to expand online. Don't you also have a few that are specific to New York City boroughs? Exactly. No, we have three guides for New York, actually. The New York Guide, which is all of Manhattan, a few Brooklyn neighborhoods, a few Queens neighborhoods, and then New Jersey and Staten Island and the Bronx. But we do have a separate Queens Guide and a separate Brooklyn Guide. What prompted the idea for these guidebooks? Well, the whole idea was that Jane Perrone, who's the founder and owner of Not For Tours, she was a PA working in the film industry, running around town. She'd need to find a hardware store, then get to the bank. And she just was making her own notes of where to go. So one day she said, hey, wait a second, I think I'm onto something here. I bet your other people could use this too. And that's how it started. Sure. Try to find a gas station in Manhattan when you actually really, really need a gas station. Exactly. You're not going to unless you have the book on you. So talk to me about what's in this book specifically. You mentioned hardware stores. You mentioned grocery stores. What else can we find in here? Well, of course, we have restaurants, which is everyone's favorite thing to do in New York, which is eat, of course. But we have great nightlife sections, everything on, you know, billiards, parlors to bowling. And, I mean, the the really cool thing about the guides is we cover every single neighborhood in Manhattan, all the way up to Inwood, all the way down to the tip. We're not just, you know, Times Square. In fact, we're going to tell you when you get to Times Square, stay for maybe five seconds and then get out of there as quick as possible. Who are your contributors? What we do is we hire people from as many different neighborhoods as we can, and the one requirement to write for NFT, no matter what city it is, so you have to live in that city, and you can't just be there for a few weeks at a time. You need to be living there full time. How diverse are your contributors? 
it's pretty diverse. I mean, we really try to mix it up. It's sometimes it's harder to get certain neighborhoods. For example, you know, we've had difficult times in parts of Chicago and parts of San Francisco. But it's really funny when we finally get the word out there. Since we're still such a small company, people come crawling to us. I just had someone in Seattle just say, "Hey, you guys have this crappy Chinese restaurant in my neighborhood. You know, you need to hire me." And I said, "Okay." Are you a native New Yorker? I'm actually no. I'm from uh, from Boston, so it's interesting for me to make the transition. I've been here for five years now and absolutely loved it. I lived in Brooklyn. Now I live in Manhattan, and it's just it's just unbelievable. How long have you been with Not for Tourists? I've been with them for almost four years now. So it's interesting. A lot, a lot of the writers. You can either be living there for 30 years or maybe three months even. It's just really interesting the level of diversity for someone might have a totally different perspective that's been there two months or someone that's lived there for 30 years. They may know their neighborhood real well, but then they know the place is just in that certain section. They might not have gotten out for a while. So we try to really mix it up with different levels of people too. What came into your life first, the guidebook or the job? Did you use the guidebook prior? I did use the guidebook prior. I actually was living in Seattle with my wife, and she got into library school in New York. So I said, okay, we're going to New York. My mother-in-law gave me a Brooklyn not-for-tourist guide, and I said, wow, this is amazing. And I think maybe the second week I was in Brooklyn, I saw a little ad online saying, hey, we're looking for Brooklyn contributors in a few months. I started exploring, got out there, took some notes, applied, and lo and behold, it's all worked out, and now managing editor. Your target audience is clearly not the tourist, but do you think tourists can make use of this book, and do you find that they are? They really enjoy it, actually. I mean, the neat thing about Not For Tourists is you can take any of our city guides and immediately kind of explore a city like you would a local. Like, we're not going to tell you the, you know, fanciest place to eat in town necessarily. We're going to tell you the local favorites. And so automatically, you kind of have an edge over other people, the other tourists. Like if you go to Times Square, a lot of those people will never venture out of Times Square. But for the people that like to get away from the typical areas, NFT is the perfect guide. For people that like to go up to Harlem or maybe go over to Chelsea and check out some new stuff, it's the perfect it's the perfect guide. Yeah, there are a lot of people who like to travel, but they don't like to be tourists when they do. Exactly. Yeah, no. I mean, we like to say our book is for travelers rather than tourists, and you can get into all sorts of debates about the differences in lingo and how it works. But in the end, I really think that we make the guides for how we like to travel, which is, you know, if we're going somewhere, even for three days, the Not For Tourist Guide is perfect because you can get on the ground running and be like, oh, here's the best indie bookstore in town. Here's the best coffee shop. And it's almost like opening this whole world of if I was in a neighborhood, if I like came to the Bronx, let's say, and I was a block away from the coolest thing that the locals love, but I missed it, that's kind of what NFT is there. So you don't miss anything when you're in each neighborhood. What's the coolest thing you discovered personally through these guides? Wow. I mean, there's so much. Like I just love getting out and exploring on my own. I mean, one of my favorite places in all of New York is Arturo's Pizza. Arturo's keeps it real. They have live jazz every night. There's old school Greenwich Reels regulars. And I never even heard of that place until I picked up the book. And now I'm pretty much a regular. The old fashioned roadmap is sort of a dinosaur thanks to GPS technology. How have the Not for Tourist guidebooks kept pace with changing technology? It's really difficult. We're actually redesigning the books a little bit right now for next year because with smartphones and the web, it's so easy to find stuff like a bank per se. And things change so fast now, too, that it's really hard to keep up with a printed edition. So what we're trying to do is focus more 
on a lot of the more local things that other places might not have. Google Maps may say, hey, here's the nearest Chase Bank, but they might not tell you where, you know, the best pizza place is. This guidebook that I have here in my hand, the Not for Tourists Guide to New York City, is pocket-sized. But I understand that there are different sizes for different cities. Exactly. That's one of the biggest complaints or feedbacks we get. Someone in Chicago just emailed and said, hey, I love the NFT guide, but I got the Chicago guide. And what's up with this medium-sized book? And with so much territory to cover, because we really don't like to limit our space to just like the touristy areas or the downtown areas, we like to cover as much as we can. The Chicago, L.A., Seattle, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, these are much bigger cities. And so to cover the cartography and the mapping, we need to make them bigger per square mile. And also, so many people in those cities are driving around, so they might have it in their glove compartment or they throw it in their backpack. But personally, no, I like the smaller guides where you just throw it in your back pocket and you're good to go. Craig Nelson, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Craig Nelson is a managing editor for the Not for Tourists City Guidebooks. You're tuned to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. When we return, another guide of the living, breathing variety. WFUV invites you to strike a chord for the people of Haiti. The Haitian Red Cross estimates the recent earthquake left up to 3 million people injured or homeless. Organizations like the Red Cross, Mercy Corps, and CARE are bringing food, emergency shelter, and medical supplies to Haiti. Workers are also helping to reunite families separated in the crisis and give them emotional support. To find out more about their efforts and to learn how you can help, visit the Strike Accord webpage at WFUV.org. Welcome back to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My name is Susan from Toronto, Canada. I am uh, actually just came down to visit my best friend who lives in Paris, France for, the, uh, for a couple of days. So... Um, I'm just coming down, checking out New York. It's my first time here. When I travel, I'm very, the word is to say very free, very liberal. I, uh, I really go with no plan, uh, not very much money, and I see absolutely everything, and I, I find that I see really how the people live because uh, that's the best way to do it when you don't have money. Yeah. This is the first time I use a travel guide because I got one as a gift. But usually the best guide for me is to ask, uh, ask people, ask around, ask absolutely everyone until you get the answer that you want to get. I find that I can because I've, I've, I've tra- first time I ever traveled was with for my with my best friend from Paris, so um, he was already quite experienced in traveling. So I kind of learned how to scope out the waters that way. And uh, you can always kind of tell if you're in a bad place or you're in a place that you don't like so much. You just get up and move to the next. It's not really about having to read it from a book because usually the books don't really. I, this travel guide I have that right now, I find that it's uh, really led me in the wrong direction so I don't use it anymore. The coolest thing about that I've discovered about the travel guide is the fold-out map. I can put it in my pocket and just go on my way. And last, but certainly not least, you can always turn to a human tour guide for the lowdown on locales. Maria Deering operates several tours in New York City, and today she's taking us on a tour of her occupation. Hello, George. How long have you been a tour guide in New York City? I've been a tour guide for seven years. And what prompted you to get into this line of work? I started out doing historical research for people, also uh, doing research for uh, genealogy, lineage uh, clients. And uh, along the way, I became very interested in the history of the city. I also worked for a number of tourism organizations since I first started working in New York. And I thought, 
well, why don't I become a tour guide and then I can design and lead my own tours and do them the way I'd like to do them uh, in the neighborhoods that I prefer. Is it everything you expected it to be? Uh, I think it is and more. (laughs) I think there have been some great experiences along the way. I always am impressed by how much more I need to learn in order to be able to answer people's questions. What's the oddest thing someone has ever asked you on a tour? Sometimes people will say things like, uh, gee, did you know uh, a certain person lived in this building in 1932? And uh, often it'll be a celebrity, sometimes it might even be a gangster, and I won't have a clue about who that person was simply because, you know, it hasn't been on my radar, it's not something that I researched. So... I I wouldn't say that's exactly odd, but it's kind of a curveball because I wonder if I should have dug a little bit more deeply into that building or that street. Uh, It's amazing what people come up with, though, in terms of, I would say, uh, trivia, uh, New York City trivia. Their their memory banks are incredible. What kinds of tours do you lead? Do you have a specialty? I like to lead tours that involve the history of specific neighborhoods, and I also like to tie it into national events, such as a tour that focuses on Gramercy Park, the Gramercy Park neighborhood, rather, during the Civil War. And I talk about Edwin Booth as being the brother of John Wilkes Booth. I talk about the troops that were billeted for a while in Gramercy Park um, that were brought in to put down the draft riots. So I like to look at things in a broader perspective. Are your tours geared toward tourists or native New Yorkers, would you say? I thought they were geared toward tourists, but actually about 70% of my customers are native New Yorkers uh, who are either still living here or have moved away, and they come back on vacation and they want to go to neighborhoods that were meaningful to them while they lived here. Sometimes it could even be a neighborhood where they grew up. It's interesting. A lot of New Yorkers do have an insatiable appetite for all things New York City, so I guess it kind of makes sense. Yes. Yes, it does. And in fact, um, I had three people come on a tour. Two were a couple. Um, One woman lived just a few blocks away from the starting point of the tour, and it turns out that they all knew each other while they lived in New York about 15 years ago. We've met in person before, Maria, and I know that you're not the tallest of people, neither am am I. I will admit. That's right. But you once led a tour of the Tall Club of New York? Yes. There is an organization, I believe it's international. They have a chapter in New York City, the Tall Club of New York. I was booked by a friend of mine who is 6'2", a fellow who's 6'2". And they wanted a tour of Central Park, but starting at the Metropolitan Museum and ending on the west side. So it was very crowded Saturday afternoon, and I said, well, I have a sign, you know, so people can see me. And I was joined by a woman who just wanted to take the tour for, you know, possible booking for a later date. So I was standing there with my sign, and this fellow who booked the tour walked up and started laughing hysterically, and he said, you're five foot three. And you're holding a sign that says Tall Club of New York Tour. How do you expect we'll ever see you down there? What would you say, Maria, is the most challenging aspect of being a tour guide in the city? Well, 
I think it's to keep the tour moving while answering questions, uh, making sure that the slower people in the group don't lag behind, making sure that everybody can hear me, because I, I haven't yet found an amplification system that I really like, so I just try to use my own voice. Okay, Maria, I'm going to give you an opportunity here to sell yourself as a tour guide. Okay. Why go out with a tour guide versus a travel guide or a history book? A tour guide can, first of all, answer the questions that you have right then and there. If they're a native of the area, if they've studied, and if they're not working from a prepared script, but rather something that they've put together themselves, chances are that they've put a lot of hours into working on that script, anticipating what questions are, and also following up the particular things that interest them. So speaking from my own experience, when I put together a tour, I do a lot of original research into newspaper articles, magazine articles, uh, letters and diaries, that type of thing. So I think you're going to get, even on a public tour, a much more customized product depending on that guy's experience and, and what their own preferences are. Maria Deering, thank you so much. Thank you, George. Maria Deering is a tour guide here in New York City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Haiti as that country continues to recover from this month's devastating earthquake. Once again, if you're looking for ways to help, you can visit the Strike Accord webpage at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend.